and then we will um, go to the word, okay? Let's read. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For whoever hated his own flesh, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am, say and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord." Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free." Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Lord, would you allow our time this morning to be profitable in that we would see um, how your gospel, Lord, penetrates our lives in practical ways. Lord, would you allow us to see the beauty, Lord, of that, and how uh, Lord, it is what you have done for us in bringing us into your family that we can be called your children and that we are in Christ now because of what you have done. And Lord, that has so many rippling effects. So Lord, help us to see that this morning. Help us to uh, just grab a hold, Lord, of what your truth is revealing to us. And I ask, Lord, as your messenger that you would simply use me as the vehicle through which you want to fashion and shape uh, your children. And Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know you, maybe they're seeking, Lord, maybe they're, uh, they're here because they've just been invited, I ask, Lord, that you would uh, allow your Holy Spirit to, to, to begin to squeeze their heart, Lord, that they would see uh, the beauty of the gospel fleshed out and, and realize, Lord, it's because of you that we as believers, Lord, can live. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that reality. And we ask now for your strength and your help in your precious name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Um, in my history as a, as a Christian, um, I found that much of the church has turned inward in many ways. Um, and this has taken place initially out of good intentions, but often um, out of security for themselves, so that, for example, if my car is broken down, I want to find a trustworthy Christian mechanic, and if I need my teeth looked at, I want a person scratching around my mouth that is a Christian, and if uh, I have an, additional, uh, an, an addition to build on my house, I'm looking for a contractor that has some kind of a Christian stamp on his license, and on and on and on and on it goes. And the end result of that. Um, what is what we call this Christian yellow pages. Anyone ever receive one of those things? You know, I, I'm, I'm interested to find out how they determine whether or not someone actually gets to get in there. What is the means by which you get to put yourself in these Christian yellow pages? But the reality is that 
when you get that Christian yellow pages, the idea is that now your mind can finally be at ease. Because for every need you may encounter, there's a brother or a sister in Christ for you to turn to and trust. And the wicked world somehow will be much a better place because you now can depend on a Christian rather than a pagan unbeliever. And friends, that's a little bit naive um, to think that way, yet I think many in the body of Christ kind of drifted that way. Um, Because what happened was that through this Christian Yellow Pages idea, uh, many Christians were actually exposed from the side of the worker and from the side of the customer. From the, from the side of the Christian worker, soon there were contractors and mechanics and, and plumbers who were not finishing their jobs on time or on budget or with care, and the Christian homeowners were at a loss for what to do. Um, to confront them was awkward. To take them to court was unbiblical. All right, and was a card that was often used in that kind of a context to say, hey, you know, I get out of jail free because you can't sue me. To appeal to the church was pointless because most churches do not apply any form of discipline on how their members behave and act as they live their lives. Then there was the side of the actual Christian consumer or the customer. They wanted to always get a fair price on what was going on. In fact, they they wanted the the best price because, hey, we're Christians. You should be giving me the best price. I should expect you to give me a cut right. And they were willing to do things under the table to take shortcuts, all the while claiming that God was opening up doors and blessing them. And as a result, this utopian idea of a Christian Yellow Pages went down the tubes. What it all revealed was that relationships among Christians and relationships involving Christians were in a shambles that they were not living out of their union with Christ. Instead, we had formed a subculture club with self-serving expectations. So, as a result of that, many in the church began to drift back to those pagan ungodly mechanics that did good work but smoked cigarettes, had long hair, and even the odd motorcycle tattoo. Now you see the idea that's going on there. It's almost like this, you know, I have to turn to a believer in order to make sure that things are done well. And there is, there is comfort in, in having people that you know that are believers doing that, that kind of work for you, but there's also a bad side of that because God's called us to live in this world. And to live in this world means we're interacting with those that are unbelievers. And these are opportunities to actually have an opportunity to share the gospel and to to talk about things and and, to offer, you know, here's here's a cup of coffee or here's a drink or here's a sandwich while you're working on the house. And hey, I noticed your house, you have a lot of nice little sayings here. What is it all about? Oh, yeah, well, we're believers. And, you know, and there's opportunities, but. We protect ourselves. We want to be somewhat in this this comfortable little bubble, and we forget that God has placed us here for a reason. And listen, the the problem that, that is under the surface for most Christians was that they were disturbed by the sinful behavior of their fellow believers. How could this Christian contractor not do what he said he was going to do? Why is it? that as a customer, you're wanting me to do this and not make any profit at all. You want me to lose out so that you can benefit. What, what kind of ethic is that? And so friends, we come to Ephesians 5.21 as the, the backdrop of, of what Paul is about to say that helps us now understand this, this interaction, this interplay between those who are working and those who are the ones who are doing, uh, who are employing people, you might want to say. It says they're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a mutual submission that should be present in all relationships within the body of Christ. And, and Paul fleshes it out in three different ways in this text, and we've seen them. 
First of all, there's the spirit-filled marriage. I say spirit-filled because this mutual submission is at the end of his discussion on what does it look like to be spirit-filled. And one of the dynamics there was that you had mutual submission. This is evidence now of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life and a desire now to flesh out this mutual submission in the context of marriage where there is a husband who's been given the responsibility by God to care for his wife and to love her. It's an authoritative position. He is the head of his wife. And yet, there's a wife who's been given instruction to submit. They carry out their roles lovingly, carefully, graciously, but mutually submitting to one another, recognizing that's your role before God, this is my role before God. And then it moves on to parents and children. And parents and children are to submit to one another before God, but recognize at the same time that they have God-given roles and responsibilities. And so children are to obey their parents in the Lord, to honor their parents. And parents then are, are expected to then take their responsibility from God and to raise their children in the teaching and the instruction of the word of God. But there is this authority-submission relationship in marriage, in the family, and then also now as it, as it fleshes out in the context of a master and a slave. And just look at the passage, beginning at verse five. Slaves, bond slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So you have this master-slave relationship that Paul is talking about. Let's think a little bit about this idea of slavery. The history books tell us that slaves made up between 25 to 35% of the population of Hellenistic society. So, in a metropolis like Rome, or in a significant city like Corinth, or Ephesus, to whom this letter was written, one-third of the people were owned by masters. That's a pretty significant chunk of the population. Now, our contemporary view of slavery is a little different than that of Hellenistic um, slavery or the slavery you saw in a Hellenistic society. Our typical view of slavery goes back to the um, American-African slave trade kind of mentality, which was a very, very ugly affair where slaves were the result of of raids into villages for the purpose of simply getting slaves and making money, and it it was for profit. Whereas in the Hellenistic culture, slaves were usually those taken Um, as captives in battle throughout the Roman Empire. They were brought back to Rome or to Ephesus or to Corinth, wherever it might be, um, and they were sold to wealthy and not so wealthy owners. And there are different ways that they were used. They were certainly used um, as manual labor in many places. A lot of them might want to say those that were trained as soldiers, those that were strong, those that were simply, for lack of a better term, the grunt workers were used in mines, working in the fields, that kind of stuff. So they were, they were you know, committed to a life that was hard. Um, they were committed to you know, difficult labor, but that certainly was one of the dynamics in which they were used. Also, many slaves were craftsmen or tradesmen, Metal workers, and carpenters, and masons, and seamstresses, and cooks. Um, they were vital to the economy of Rome. And they worked their job, but they were owned by someone else. And then there were others that were educated professionals. And they were used in the homes to manage the household, to educate children, to oversee farms, to care for horses. I mean, think of a biblical example like Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery, but Joseph, in his slavery, was a master of a household. Well, not master, he was the runner of a household, but under a master. So he was given great responsibility, even over the children. Okay? So the concept of slavery is a little bit different in a Hellenistic society, and it's important to kind of flesh that out and to think it through. So the reality here is this. Um, it was possible then, it was very likely, I should say, that under the same roof where families 
lived, and in that kind of society, again, you had multiple families that under the greater family that lived under the same roof. You would also have slaves living in those same dwelling places with those families. So the household included, you know, mom and dad, aunts and uncles, grandma and grandpas, children, as well as all the slaves that were there to help the household function and to do its thing. Without slaves, the wealthy, of Rome, or the wealthy of Rome, Corinth and Ephesus, would not have been able to live the kind of lifestyles that they wanted to. So typically, those slaves were treated well and were usually trusted for the benefit that they provided the master's family. And it's really important to recognize that. Now still, when it comes down to it, they were the property of the master and he had ultimate authority and control over their lives and usefulness. So in a Hellenistic culture, the father would likely be maintaining three authoritative roles. I just want you to think about that. He was the husband, he was the father, and he was the master. Okay? It's a little foreign to us. We see the husband, we see the father, but we don't experience the master concept within the household. Anyone here go home, you have a slave living there. No, no I, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious, I'm trying to be real. We don't live in that kind of culture. And so we, we have difficulty wrapping our hands around what's going on here um, and so it's important then just to kind of flesh it out a little bit for our purposes. So it's to this last relationship that, that Paul now is writing. And, and these instructions, friends, are probably the most shocking instructions to the Ephesian reader or the Ephesian listener at this point in time. But friends, there's, there's also a sense in which um, even the mention of slavery in the context of a struggle um, or say in the context of the church, is a struggle for the average church attender. Slavery is a very uncomfortable topic, right? I mean, you don't you sit around at Starbucks and say, hey, well, what should we talk about? Oh, let's talk about slavery. You'd be worried about what people are listening to, right? And what are they gonna say? And you know, if I say something just a little bit off in their mind, you know, it could be um, pretty, pretty bad. It's also um, especially uncomfortable when it appears, I say appears, that Paul's silence on the matter condones it. And so there's, there's actually kind of a, an uncertainty about it, even among Christians, like, ooh, this is a topic that's kind of, I just don't even want to get into it because I am fearful that, that Scripture doesn't rise to a place where it speaks out. So let's pause for a few moments and address the tension that we can press on um, and grasp what, what is being said here. We don't want to be sidetracked because we're having a difficulty with this idea of slavery. So at the time of this writing, when Paul's writing, um, actually the treatment of slaves in the Roman Empire had radically improved. Check the history books for that. Slaves could actually generally count on being set free. Maybe by the time they're in their late 30s or so, um, they could work toward that. And so uh, the inscriptions have been found dating this to time that, that demonstrate that about 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. So different than maybe what we would think. Um, not only that, but during their slavery, the slaves were allowed to accumulate personal property that was recognized as their own. So they were, they were given the freedom to own things, which again is foreign because if you're a slave, you do what I tell you to do, and what you think is yours is not yours because it's mine. And there was an attitude of, of change there among the masters and among the culture as to what they could and couldn't do. Another one that's interesting is that slavery was also one way to becoming a Roman citizen. Can you imagine putting yourself in, in, into slavery for 10 years or so for the purpose of having them the right to become a citizen of Rome. Well, it's pretty impactful when you understand in that context what it meant to be a citizen of Rome. So it was a great opportunity. A lot of people are rushing over our borders. Why? Because ultimately they want the benefits of living in the United States. And to be a citizen of Rome came with lots of benefits. Okay, so there, there are some implications here uh, about slavery that are helpful for us 
in kind of understanding the picture that is being painted here by Paul. So I want to just talk about three things briefly here about slavery that just will help us finalize, at least in in a short time here, um, a perspective about what is going on here on the subject of slavery. First of all, slavery is not condoned in the Bible. Paul may not condemn slavery, but he certainly does not condone it. Paul's apparent silence on the subject um, um, is not due to Christianity's love and embrace of it. Um, Slavery was just an everyday part of life. There were slaves, and there were slaves in households. Okay, So if you were an Ephesian, you probably had a slave raise you. Your teacher was likely an educated slave who taught you and your siblings, your cooks and your house managers were likely slaves, but they were all ultimately under the authority of your father, the master, okay? So it's a part of life. Secondly, um, through Christianity, slaves were actually elevated. Paul's day, a slave was seen as a, a thing, a piece of property, Um, Aristotle taught that there could never be friendship between master and slave because they had nothing in common. But now in Christ, what? They do have something in common. When they gather to worship the Lord, they gather as equals. So Christianity was a means of elevating slaves. Third thing is, It's through Christianity that slaves were ultimately liberated. It's through the ethics of Christian teaching that the liberation of slavery began to be seen. And as a result of this this Christian teaching, attitudes began to change, and then the idea of slavery actually altogether began to change. But it's still something that is pretty uncomfortable. You may have caught on to something as we read this passage here this morning and as we've talked about the subject of slavery. Because in our text up on the screen, and maybe in your Bible, it doesn't say slave. How many of you have the ESV and it says bondservant? Okay? How many of you have the ESV and it says slaves? Interesting, right? So you have actually a translation, a good translation, that actually translates this word two different ways. Now the ESV, the ESV is actually saying it correctly when it says slaves, because the Greek word there is doulos, which literally means a slave. A bond slave is actually something different. A bond slave is someone who has been under a master, and has been granted their freedom, but chooses, rather than to be free, to align themselves to that master. But that's not what's going on here. It's just a word that means slave. And the problem is there's a reluctance because of our culture to translate this word doulos as slave because of its negative connotations. In fact, John MacArthur has written about the effects of this weak translation of doulos in his book, Slave. Okay, you may be aware of it. But he actually talked to the translators of the ESV and he pleaded with them, please translate it like it's supposed to be translated as slave. And I didn't realize that there were actually two different ESV translations out there, one that had slave and one that had bondservant. And, And the interesting thing there is why? It's because of its impact and, and, and what people are going to think, the Bible actually speaks about slaves. Yes, it speaks about slaves. So, this is really important because the effect of this weak translation of bond slave or bond servant um, makes a big difference in our understanding of what it means to be a slave of Christ. Does Christ own us? Yes. Does he own us because we simply desire to be owned by him? Or does the book of Ephesians teach us something different? That before the foundation of the world, that God was doing something. He was electing. He was drawing. Okay? So there's some things that are important there. 
It is God who owns us, it's God who teaches us, it's God who tells us what we should do. He has the right to do that because he is our Lord and Master. And he is good, and he is kind, and he is loving as a master. That's why in verse five of our text here, Paul uses a play on words. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Well, what is that word master? It's the word kurion, which translated also means Lord. Well, who is our Lord? Well, in this passage, look at verse seven, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, as to the kurion. So there are earthly lords, and then there is Jesus, who is Lord. Jesus is master, they are your earthly masters. Now, we're gonna get into what that kind of fleshes out, but just understand that the dynamic here of slave and master is here for a reason. And to diminish it somehow by, by giving a weak translation diminishes our understanding of what it means to truly be in Christ and to be a slave of Christ. Because if I'm a servant, then I'm doing that willfully. If I'm a slave, it's because I have no choice. Okay? Now that's, that's really it's impactful, but that's what it is. Now, let's, uh, let's again continue to think through this. None of us have slaves in our homes, and so we don't necessarily relate to this passage. And I think it's, it's, it's appropriate then for us to recognize that what this does relate to then is this relationship of employer and employee, the employer being the master, the employee being the slaves. Okay, Because that master in the household is functioning as a boss, is functioning as an employer. All right? And that slave would be someone who then has been, who has been tasked with certain jobs to obey that master and to carry out his wishes. So what we're looking at here today is this, how the gospel impacts the workplace, the role of the worker or the employee, <coughs> the role of the boss, the employer. Now, before we jump in there, some people say that you should leave your religion at the doorstep. You ever heard that one said by other people? You know, leave it at the doorstep. It has no place in the workplace. Well, that's kind of a really an ignorant statement. Because you have, if you believe something, you're taking it with you. Now, I know what they mean. This is not a place to proselytize. This is not a place to you know, put your big you know, John 3.16 poster behind your desk or something like that. I get that. But you can't just turn it off. And most importantly, God doesn't want you to turn it off. In fact, what he's saying here is that you need to recognize that you need to turn it on that what you do in the context of work is important to who you are in Christ. So chapters one through three that gives us this picture of what it means to be in Christ now fleshes out in marriage, in the family relationship, but now in the work relationship. The gospel impacts how you work, and the gospel impacts how you work as an employee, and the gospel impacts how you work as a boss in that kind of context. Whether you're actually the CEO or whether you're in management overseeing a group of people, it applies. And so Paul is going to address that for our benefit right now. So let's think through then, first of all, the spirit-filled slave or employee. Starts out by saying slaves or bondservants. And just, just think through this a little bit. Your relationship with Christ should make you the best employee on the job. Now, if there are two believers at work, that doesn't mean you're fighting it out to be the best employee on the job, right? We're not talking about you know, brownie points and stars. We're just saying the fact that you are rooted to Christ should mean that you approach work in a way that would honor him. And you're the kind of employee that any boss would want to have. So there's the command to obey, the command to obey. So slaves here are called to obey, employees then are called to obey. Look at verse five, because it tells us there, slave, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And then if you look at verse six, it says, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now what's interesting here is there's two 
two descriptions there of this word heart. The first one actually is the word cardia, which is your heart. The second one is suke, which is the soul. Uh, confusing. One is translated heart in verse, verse 5. In verse 6, it's also translated heart. But they're actually two different words. That's my point. But Paul is saying here, by using those two different words, that this obedience then is, is a whole body thing. He's talking about your heart, your inner man, the this, this soul, which is the, uh, also part of that picture of that inner man. This whole being mentality, your obedience involves all of you. You are all in. It's a total person obedience. Now certainly there are going to be times when you may have a boss and he may be asking you to do things that are unethical, like he might want you to lie for him. Hey, tell them I'm not here. Well, you are here, and I'm not going to lie. So you have to sort that one out. If you're in a relationship where your boss wants you to do something that is to be untruthful, he can't come to the phone right now. You've got to find some way to be honest with God and to be honest with your boss and honest with the person on the end of the phone. Okay? Again, you don't turn it off when you walk out your door. It's still present in the context of the workplace. He might ask you to, you know, to, to, to cook the books a little bit. No, you can't do that. Or to take advantage of a, a gullible customer. Got to be careful with that. And if you're in sales, you got to be thinking about that too. Man, I can make a lot of money off this person. And someone who is not a believer, someone who is not rooted to Christ, may take advantage of that person because they're gullible. And Christ is saying, listen, You've got to be careful that you're not acting sinfully in the workplace simply because you can. You're one of mine, and that fashions and shapes what you do. And so there's always pressure in the context of the workplace to do things that go outside of what God says is good and healthy and right, and we need to be able to discern that. But there's still this general principle of obedience that is necessary, and, and it's fleshed out, and I'm using four words to, to help us wrap our hands around it that I think flow right out of this text. So verse, verse five again, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now that's usually a word or a couple of words that kind of go together. You usually think about you know, Moses you know, at the burning bush, and, uh, fear and trembling, right? You usually think of that expression as something, uh, kind of painting a picture of someone before God. And that's certainly a right thing to do. But turn now to Philippians chapter, chapter 2 and verse 12. It's the next book over to the, to the right, chapter 2 and verse 12. And it says here, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Uh, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, it is? It's 12. Okay, it is 12. I was reading 10. Okay. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only ask as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what's, what's going on here is, is that Paul is saying, listen, work out your progressive sanctification. Work out this salvation that you've now been called to in a way that is humble and thankful and reverent before God. That's the idea there. So there's this respect, there's this reverence that's going on. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. 2 Corinthians, so now you want to go back a little bit. Chapter 7 and verse 15. It's interesting what Paul says here to the Corinthian church. Speaking about um, Titus, who's going to be coming, he says, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. But what's going on there? Titus was a representative of Paul. He was a messenger of Paul and the church in Corinth. When Titus came speaking for Paul and representing Paul, they received him with fear and trembling, with reverence and humility and ultimately respect for Paul concerned that they would treat his emissary appropriately. Okay, So this idea of fear and trembling then has this idea of respect, has this idea of concern, has this idea of making sure that you are um, you're doing things in a way that is 
that is honoring and, and um, appreciative of those who are um, your employees, or employers, I should say. So, in our contemporary context, Paul is calling on employees to treat their superiors with the same kind of respect. A kind of respect that recognizes that God is the one to whom they must answer. Now often in the context of, a, of the workplace, there can be um, what I'll call working class disconnect, right? You got the management, and then you got those that aren't management. I was... I was in Michigan for a number of years, and in Michigan there are lots of factories where they build cars. I think they're still running the factories. If anyone's still in Detroit, I'm not sure. Um, but um, I got some property in Detroit if you're interested. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there was always this kind of discussion about, you know, well, the unions and management and the workers and management and management. There are all these, you know, young whippersnappers coming out of college and they don't know what they're doing. And then you've got the workers, they've been there for 15, 20 years and they know everything that's going about. And it's true. You've got these workers that are there. And what happens is you have this disconnect and you have this, this isolation management against the employees. And you've seen it throughout the history of our country. And so there, there's a sense in which when that happens, there can be derogatory comments and jokes and attitudes toward those who are uh, the superiors that just do not honor God. And the Christian is called here to avoid that kind of attitude and behavior. They're called to be faithful employees that do their work respecting the authority and wishes of their bosses and their superiors. In fact, in the context of, of that dichotomy, it may be considered a sign of weakness to honor and respect your superior. Your peers may not like it at all. As if maybe you think that you're better than everyone else. But, but God is calling us to fight, to honor, and to respect the Lord first. And in respecting the Lord first, that overflows then into a respect of our bosses, our employers. So, Bottom line practical application here is this. Don't talk bad about your boss behind their backs or in front of their faces. Um, be careful that you're not caught in lunch table gossip about your superiors. Make sure that when you do talk about them that you do so with genuine respect and consideration. Now you may know a lot more about what it is that's going on than your superiors do but that doesn't give you the right to talk down to them. The reality is that's probably why you were hired. I mean, I would expect that management recognizes that the person on the floor, in the factory, probably knows how to work that machinery far better than management does. And that's a mutual respect that is going on there. So you may know, but you've got to be quiet. I, I uh, was not in ministry for a, few, a little while, and, and, and I was looking for work, couldn't find anything except for working at FedEx. So this is not even 10 years ago. Um, a 40-something guy working at FedEx lifting boxes. And around 20-something people that are buff, and it was an interesting cost. And I'm going in there, and I'm thinking, I'm seeing all these rows and the training, and I'm thinking to myself, well, how come they didn't tell us about that? And wouldn't it be good if they gave us a map of everything so you could study it before you came in? And I'm thinking flow and all these things, and I'm just like, you know, I, I'm bursting with wanting to say something. But I just had to, <clears throat> why? Because I was hired to lift the box and to put it into a container. And I've got to be careful that I'm not trying to present myself as something other than what it is that I am at that point in time. And there's a sense in which God calls us to do our jobs, but to do those jobs respectfully. And that means that we gotta be careful about how we do our jobs, all right? And friends, it's so easy to get caught up in this, this lunchroom gossip and this kind of employees getting together and chatting about what's going on and that kind of stuff. And there's a sense in which some of that stuff is important, but you gotta be careful. You're not dragged into a lack of respect for those that are your su superiors. 
God's called us to use our gifts and labor and expertise to benefit them, okay? Secondly, what I'm calling um, with integrity. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. This word sincere comes from the world of pottery. You probably know this already, but um, in, in the world of pottery, um, there's a lot of tricks of the trade. And so back in the day, um, a, lot of the, you know, a lot of the Tupperware back there was pottery, right? And it didn't pop when you lift the lid off or stuff like that. But everyone used pottery to keep their stuff in. So there was a lot of trading in pottery that took place. And because of that, no one wanted their pottery to go to waste. So if there was a piece of pottery that had a little bit of a crack in it, those that owned the pottery had some tools or tricks of the trade. They would use some kind of a bomb, some kind of a seal that would cover it up and they would be able to paint it. But in order to determine whether or not it was cracked or not, you would take the piece of pottery up and you'd lift it up to the light because they couldn't quite conceal the, the transparent aspect of that crack being there. Okay, And if they looked at this piece of pottery and it had a crack in it, you could see it. It may have, it may be covered, it may have had that seal on it, but it was called insincere. If there were no cracks, it was called sincere. It was the real thing. It was true. And so what's being talked about here then is a sincere heart, as you would then obey Christ. All right, so the, 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 you know, the contemporary application then is to obey without hypocrisy. To obey then with integrity throughout. There's a story of a farmer who one day went happily and with great joy in his heart to report to his wife and family that their best cow had given birth to twins. One red one one white one. And he said to his wife, you know, I have suddenly had this feeling of, of impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We'll bring them up together, and when the time comes, we'll sell one and keep the proceeds, and we'll sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. Great idea. His wife asked him, well, which um, one are you going to dedicate to the Lord? He said, oh, there's no need to worry about that now. We'll treat them both in the same way, and when the time comes, we'll do as I say. So off he went. Um, a few months went by, and he comes into the kitchen, miserable and unhappy, and his wife asks him, what's wrong? And he said, I have some bad news. The Lord's calf is dead. She said, well, I thought we were going to decide which one was the Lord's calf? He says, oh yes. He says, I had always decided that it was going to be the white one. And it's the white one that has died. The Lord's calf is dead. Now, the point of that story is to say, listen, sometimes we say things, we commit to things that leave things maybe a little open-ended and we end up functioning without the integrity of our word. And in the context of the workplace, in the context of relationship with an employer, we need to let our yes be yes. And we need to say what we mean. And if we fail to do something, say we fail to do something. There's integrity. And as an employer, if, if you're an employer and you have an employee who is telling you the truth, you know, I made a mistake, this is what happened, I'm sorry, I'll correct it, I'll do what I need to do it. You know what, you have, you have some... Uh, you have respect for that person because, you know, life is going to be full of, of problems. There are going to be mistakes. There are going to be difficulties. But if you have someone with integrity, you can trust them. But a person that doesn't have that integrity, that is always fudging around to say whatever needs to be said in order to please the master, to make it appear right, that person doesn't have that integrity and that employer is not going to appreciate them. And God wants us to be men and women of integrity in particular in the context of our work. The third one is with loyalty. And, and this one fleshes out really with, with two different dynamics in verse, in verse 6. It says, not by the, the way of ice surface, uh, service as people pleasers, um, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So there's a positive side to this and there's a, a negative side. We'll look at the negative side first of all. 
And the negative side is this, not I service, or what I'm calling self-loyalty. It's possible to be an employer, sorry, an employee, those are two words, always getting them mixed up, right? It's always possible to be a worker, that'll save me some help, um, and, and, to, and to have as my goal myself, my benefit, my progress. It's all about me, okay? And so I'm calling that self-loyalty. It says, not by way of eye service as people please. It's the idea of eye service is service given to attract attention to yourself. So it includes the attitude of just working hard when your boss is looking and then slacking off when they're gone, as if your coworkers don't see that, right? Um, but it goes beyond that. It also involves the idea of doing things before the boss in order to impress so as to gain approval with the goal, for example, of gaining a promotion. Let me paint the picture a little differently here. It means a worker that is waiting to do something so that you can be seen by your boss rather than doing it when it needs to be done. In other words, you, you're, you're, you're waiting for the timing of it because you want your boss to see that you're doing it. Not because you want to do good work, because you want the benefit. You want that loyalty to yourself. It's being helpful or kind to a coworker or a customer with an earshot of your boss for the purpose of impressing your boss. Not for the purpose of benefiting the business or what you've been asked to do. See, these are all behaviors that are driven by the selfish desire to impress your boss rather than to impress God. Now this person appears loyal, appears loyal to the boss or the company, but his heart is simply focused on getting what he wants, getting that promotion, getting recognition, climbing the ladder, and so on and so forth. This is not godly ambition at all. It's selfish ambition. Godly ambition does what is necessary when it's necessary, regardless of where the boss is or if they're watching. Godly ambition treats the customer with kindness and courtesy, not to be seen by your boss, but because it's right, regardless of who is watching. Because ultimately, a Christ-centered, spirit-filled employee is doing their work not for their employer ultimately, but for Christ, who is always watching. And not that you're doing it necessarily out of fear, but you're doing it for him, to honor him, to, 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 to show your love for him, and, and to reflect what has happened in you that changes how you approach the workplace. So that's the negative side of it. The positive side then, is doing the will of God from the heart. This is not self-loyalty, this is Christ loyalty. I am loyal to Christ and I want to do then his will from my heart. What you and I do then in the workplace is because we are slaves of Christ. And so we're ultimately loyal to him. So loyalty to Christ in the workplace results in loyalty to your superiors. This idea of loyalty. Now, I think th- there's actually some elements there. I think where as Christians we struggle with that because don't we, don't we want to, you know, make progress? Shouldn't we be, you know, walking through our, our workplace hoping for some promotion or getting a raise? And how many of us, you know, have you prayed for a raise? And I wonder if you know I'm going to get that promotion, a new kind of a job. And there's an aspect where there's a there's a realistic side to that, but the, but the question is, how is that all going to take place? And are you trusting in Christ, or are you trusting your own manipulative tools to get those things? That's where we've got to be careful. Our loyalty should be for Christ. The fourth one is this, with enthusiasm, with enthusiasm. Rendering service with Goodwill as to the Lord. The word goodwill has the idea of enthusiasm and zeal. It implies having enthusiastic, positive, cheerful um, attitudes on the job. 
Now, this is hard to do when you have a variety of obstacles or pressures connected to it. You may have a boss that is unrealistically demanding. Or maybe a boss that wears his or her emotions on his or her sleeve. Maybe treats, treats the employees with unkindness. Or maybe you have to work with coworkers that complain about the boss and about how much money they're making and how much their, their health insurance premiums or co-pays have gone up, right? Or how much of a pain everyone else is in the workplace. And the list can go on and on. And it's easy to get drawn into that complaining and, and, and to get discouraged. And that discouragement will zap your enthusiasm for working hard for Christ in the context of the workplace. And it will distort God's desire for you to work his will from your heart. And you end up speaking to God in your heart saying things like this. God, how can I soar like an eagle when I have to work with a bunch of turkeys? And our attitudes change. So listen, friends, these, these are practical struggles that Paul is ide- identifying here for, for we who are workers. Now there's a motive for all of this, and the motive simply is the, the motive of reward. He has this word knowing. So they, they've clearly known something here. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now it doesn't say he will receive it back in six months. You know, one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat, where, where we who are believers will receive a, a, a declaration, so to speak, of, of reward for the things that we have done in our body, whether good or bad. And there's an ultimate reward that we as believers will all receive. Not necessarily, this is not investment for here and now. This is an investment for maturity in Christ and ultimately for eternity. And the motive here then is just, listen, if that is true, if God um, will give back or receive back anyone who's a believer who does good, I want to be a part of that. That's going to motivate me then to do these things in a way that would please him. So that's the spirit-filled slave, the spirit-filled employee or worker. And the spirit-filled master, there's a little less to say because actually in what we've talked about, um, he's going to actually kind of, kind of go back and reflect on it. But let's look at it. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. So there's a command. And again, there's a, there's a positive side to this command. Do the same. Now what's the same that he's talking about here? I think there's two things that are going on. He's talking about doing the same as it relates to your responsibility as being placed in a position of authority, just like a father is is doing in the household, just like a husband is doing in a marriage, you who are a master must do the same thing in the context of your relationship with that slave, or as we're looking at it today, as a boss, you have a responsibility to have this mutual submission as part of the dynamic of what you're doing. So just because you're a boss does not mean you're over and above those people in, in, a, in, a, in a harsh authoritarian way. It's just your position of responsibility. In order for things to, to function, there have to, be, there have to be people who are in charge and there have to be people who are following those who are in charge. And you recognize there's a mutual submission that is going on between those people. You know, some, some of you guys in our church right now, and I'll say some of you that, that you know, work on, on, on the technical side of things. Maybe it's a website or something like that, or maybe it's sound or whatever. I have no clue about those things. You do. doesn't matter. I don't, everyone doesn't have to know everything. There are people that have responsibilities that carry out those responsibilities to help everything work together. And there's this mutual submission that is going on. So, it's not only being just like those other two relationships, it's also then reflecting back, I believe, to what was just said about those who are slaves. So the, the managerial golden rule then is this, treat your slaves, your employees, in the same way that you want to be treated. Well, what is that? Well, treat them with respect, and they'll treat you with respect. Treat your employees with integrity, 
and they will respond in kind. So if you're, in the, if you're a boss and you say, hey, listen, I'll have this done on this day, guess what? You should be a person of integrity. And if something fell by the wayside and it couldn't be done, you'd go to those people and say, listen, I'm sorry, this is what I was expecting, I'll make sure that it's corrected. But you're, you're acting with integrity, just like you're asking the employees to function with integrity. Being loyal to them as employees, and then they will stand behind your business. Demonstrate enthusiasm, zeal, and hard day's work with a pleasant attitude, and your employees will be motivated to do the same. You know, this, this disconnect between worker and management oftentimes is as a result of, of workers watching management waste time, not apparently working hard, and so some of that actually probably is true in certain circumstances. So in different relationships, if you're a boss, show I'm an enthusiastic worker, just like I'm asking you to be an enthusiastic worker. That will have a rippling effect from those workers in that particular work relationship. Now friends, just think how radical this message is to masters and slaves in the context of the home in Ephesus. I mean, the gospel shakes culture transforms cultural norms and brings people into a new citizenship where Jesus Christ is the ruler and he shapes everything else. But he also is asking us in the context of where we work, whether we're employees or employers, to have that kind of spilling over carrying on in those contexts. There's a negative side then, and that is this idea of stop threatening. Stop threatening. Now, in a, in a secular world, um, it's not surprising that um, those in, in, in authority would use tactics like fear and threatening and manipulation and public humiliation uh, to motivate they're workers to get the job done. But Paul challenges that idea and he instructs the masters to stop their threatening. In other words, he's counseling the masters to be very careful about pulling out the I'm your boss card. You know, we can use that authority, you know, and just, I think it trans, trans, transfers over to, you know, I'm your dad, you know, I'm the husband here. You know, I'm the boss here, however you want to do that. As soon as you pull out that card, um, it's probably not going to be a good day. And yet, in the context of the workplace, yeah, they are the boss. And they do have that authority and responsibility. And as an employee, when they pull out that card, you still need to do your best to honor and respect them. But as a, as an, a boss, you just want to be really, really careful that you're not pulling that card out all the time because if that's the case, then you're not nurturing those workers. You're going to have difficulty in the workplace. You're not motivating them at all. So he's saying, listen, just be careful that you're not threatening. And probably then there was a habit, there was a practice of threatening in the context of masters and slave relationships. And Paul's addressing that. And there's an ultimate motive then that he is he is going, and he's talking about you know, the motive of fear versus the motive of Christ, but then he continues on um, saying, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, um, that, sorry, that, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And that is such a powerful summary statement of this whole little section. I just want you to think about this. What he's saying here is that there is a, there is a motive I'll put both of those up there, that we need to recognize in all these differences of, of, of place and position in the context of marriage and the home and in, in the workplace, all of those people have the same master who's Christ. If you're, at least if, if you're believers, right? You have the same master, and that master is Christ. You have the same status. You're in Christ. So if you are, if we're talking about a Christian master and a Christian slave, 
these things are true. But if you are a, a, a Christian slave and you have an unbelieving master, you still recognize then that you are united to the rest of the body. You're still united to Christ. So we're, we're all part of this new citizenship called the church where Christ is our master. And friends, this, this, this whole passage is undergirded um, with, with two realities that just kind of show us why this is important um, to Christ. And I wanna say, first of all, just in conclusion here, and in, prep, in preparation for our time of celebration of the Lord's table, I wanna begin by turning, um, actually you can look up the screen or turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter, uh, chapter two, beginning at verse five. And I just want you to think about this. Paul there says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus is God, based on what we just read, but he's saying, you know what, I can let go of my position in heaven for the divine purpose, and we found that in Ephesians 1, and that is to reconcile men to himself. Verse seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. That word servant is the word doulos. It's the word slave. So when Jesus came, he took upon himself the form of man, but he came as a slave who ultimately went to a cross and died in our place. Jesus knows what it means to be the one who is submissive in these relationships. He knows what it means to be submissive. In the economy of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there are different roles and function. They are all equal. But Jesus left heaven humbly, took upon himself human form, and became a slave, ultimately, even to the point of what? Death. Death on the cross. But not only is he a slave, he is also Lord. <laughs> I mean, he's both. He understands what it means to be master. He understands what it means to, to care and nurture for those that are under him. That's his church. So he knows what it means to be a slave. He knows what it means to be a master. And he knows then what he's saying when he's fleshing out through Paul's writings, how these, these two aspects actually are a are, are reflection of what it means to be in Christ. Because I can be a slave, I can be in a position of submission, I can be a child who then is, is subordinate to my parents, but I can look to Christ as the one who gives me the example of how I'm supposed to be doing that, because he understands that. And I can be a husband or a father or a boss and understand the responsibility, the great responsibility that I have been given, not just the authority, but the responsibility that is placed on my shoulders to carry out what God has called me to carry out. And Jesus, repeatedly while he was on this earth, mentioned that he had to go to the cross. And he knew what he was gonna face. And he knew the weight of responsibility that was on his shoulders and the sin ultimately would rest on his shoulders because he would be that sacrifice once for all. See, he understands that. And so it is this, this, this gospel, this picture of Christ, this reality of who Christ is in these two dynamics that is, that is motivating Paul to say, here's how you live. Here's how you live in Christ. And how many times does, does Christ come up here? Again, look at, look at our text. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of ice services, people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. And that Lord is not God the Father. That Lord is Christ knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Again, Christ, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours 
is in heaven, that master is Christ, and that there is no partiality with him. See, Christ is in the center of all of this. And he is the reason why we've been called to live our lives differently than the world around us. And so the gospel being allowed to penetrate and to infiltrate our lives and to go with us when we go to various places in the context of work is exactly what God wants to have happen in our lives. So that we can, in the context of whatever company it is, whatever business it is, the light is shining by virtue of our behavior, our good works, and then that leads into opportunities to share the truth of the gospel. He's called us to live in light of that gospel, rooted in that gospel. And so today, as we celebrate the Lord's table, it's an opportunity to be reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us by dying on the cross. It's also an opportunity for us to be reminded of where he took us from and the radical change that has taken place in our lives. And it's also a reminder of the fuel that is necessary to live our lives for his glory in, in our marriages, in our homes, and in the workplace. So Lord, help us today as we contemplate the cross right now, not just simply thinking about a concept, but just remembering, Lord, the incredible act and incredible sacrifice that was paid by what you, had, what you did on the cross for us. You went to that cross knowing that you would suffer in our place, knowing that through that suffering that we would have the, 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 the resource for reconciliation, which is you. And Lord, providing then not only a, a new life, but a new community, a new citizenship, a new way of thinking, a new way of living. But Lord, it's only because of you that we can do these things. We can be respectful, we can be loyal, we can be people who try to be trustworthy and have integrity, we can try and be enthusiastic in what we're doing, but we can do all of that, Lord, out of our own strength. But that's not what you're calling us to. You're, you're calling us, Lord, to rest in our union with you as the basis and the means by which we do these things and to do them, Lord, for your glory. So, Lord, help us now as we celebrate what you have done for us in light, Lord, of what we have studied here in the book of Ephesians. We ask this now in your name. Amen.